Hey listeners, just a quick content warning. In this episode, there is a brief discussion about inappropriate and non-consensual touching. This discussion occurs at approximately the 39-minute mark and goes to minute 43, just in case you need to skip it. Welcome to Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Before we get started, I wanted to talk about truth and honesty. We have an honesty problem in theater, and I'm not talking about on stage. We talk a lot about truth on the stage. We want what we portray to be as truthful as possible. We pursue on the stage for a scene, a moment, to be as honest and truthful as possible. Off stage, there may be many times when we feel like we can't be truthful and honest. Think about a time when you were unhappy with the way that the audiences were reacting to a show, or even you were unhappy with the turnout of audiences to the show. You felt like the show could have been getting more audiences, but wasn't getting the audiences it deserved. But could you say that? Could you post on social media about how disappointed you are? It's pretty much understood that you don't. At least, not in a place where anyone but your closest friends might see it. You have to publicly remain positive. And if you're frustrated about things happening behind the scenes, or if there's something toxic happening in the rehearsal hall, whether it's from the director, a producer, or even another actor, can we call it out? Do we call it out? Do we talk about it? Regardless of whether or not we should, we often don't. We don't talk about these things, and often it was our theater school experience that laid the groundwork for that silence. When I was in theater school, I did not have a great experience. I wouldn't say that my experience was toxic. I just wasn't very happy. And part of the problem was that, to be completely honest, I was one of those students that rode the edge of being cut from the program back when that was a regular occurrence. I'm told we don't cut people from programs anymore, which is good. But it was something that hung over my head for the entirety of the three years I was at school. And I wasn't the only one. All of us knew that we could be cut from the program and that they wouldn't have to give any reason, and the reasoning, if they gave one, wouldn't be questioned. We went through our days in fear. And so, if we saw problematic or toxic behavior, we didn't say anything. We learned not to rock the boat. I've been doing this podcast for about six years now, and occasionally I'll find out that somebody I'm interviewing went to the same theater school that I did. And I would ask them, as somebody who went to that school, I'm really curious, I'd ask how their experience was, and they would get this frozen smile on their face, and they would say, oh, it was great. But I could tell there was something not quite right there, and so we'd just gloss over it and move on. And then afterwards, when the recording was over, I'd ask them again, about their experience, and I would hear stories about how their experience was toxic, but they didn't feel like they could say that out loud, that they couldn't call it out. And so they just didn't, and they tried to put their theater school experiences behind them, all while it taught them that the most important thing for them to do was keep their mouths shut. How are we supposed to change things when we can't talk about them? It's hard enough to be an artist without having to bottle up the truth, without having to bottle up what you're feeling, like things are not going your way, or when you're being treated unfairly, or where you just want to be able to admit that you're disappointed in something. Like the turnout for a show, as I mentioned before, or a bad review. 
It's hard enough to get a bad review for a show. And again, we don't complain about that. We take our lumps and we try to let it slide. Even though we want to respond, we don't because that's not how it's done. That's not professional. And so we shrug and pretend that it doesn't bother us. But of course it does. But we can't say that it does. We have to remain positive. And I wonder sometimes if the public, the people who aren't artists, see this and wonder if we're being disingenuous. Do we seem artificial to them because we put on that brave, positive face all the time? Does it make it difficult for the non-artist to relate to us? Is that why muggles have this idea that's so often portrayed in the media that we're really fake people? I believe that people can sense when we're not being honest and when there's something we're not saying. And we know it too. It eats at us. I know it eats at me when I do it, and I wish I could just say what I'm thinking. But I don't, because that's just not what we do. And why isn't it something we do? Why is that kind of honesty frowned on? Why is it that if I get an unfair review, I can't say anything? Why is it that if I had a bad experience in the rehearsal hall, I can't say anything? We need to be able to talk about the toxic things that happen behind the scenes instead of putting on that happy face because we're afraid of the consequences. Because we can't change the toxic aspects of the industry unless we talk about them. But that requires that the industry protects the people who are speaking out. If I have a toxic experience in the theater school, I need to be able to call it out. If I have a toxic experience in the rehearsal hall, I need to be able to call it out. And I need the industry as a whole not to blacklist me, but to protect me. Instead, we have to worry that if we speak out, that we will be cast out, shunned. All because we dared to speak up. And that's not right. It is not right. We can't keep bottling up all that stuff because there's only so much you can just push down and try to ignore. And when we reach the limit, what happens? We leave the industry because we just don't have any more space to push things down. So people leave the industry because they have given everything they can to an industry they love that doesn't love them back and in fact punish them because they just wanted to be honest. I wish I had an answer to the whole thing. I wish I knew how to fix it. But maybe if we talk about it, we can take a few steps towards fixing the toxic aspects of the industry and also be a little bit better to ourselves. I'll talk about that a little more later in the show. First, a little housekeeping. And in keeping with the theme of honesty, I want to talk a little bit about Stageworthy. Occasionally, when I'm talking about Stageworthy, I will say we, as though there's a team of people who work on this show, but there aren't. It's just me. I arrange the guests, I edit the show, and I promote the show, and I even created the music. I also shoulder all of the financial responsibilities of keeping the show going, and I don't regret that. I love making this show, and I've missed creating the show during its hiatus. But in the spirit of honesty, I wanted to be clear that keeping a show like this going isn't cheap. And if you enjoy the show, there are a few things that you can do to help me out. First, you can leave a rating, and where it's possible, you can leave a review. I know I've said that hundreds of times, but it's true. 
When you rate a show, it helps new people find it. Second, you can share it on social media. Another option is to join my mailing list. I send it pretty infrequently, but it is a good way to learn about what's happening on Stageworthy and in my other projects. You can sign up for it by going to philrickaby.com and filling in the simple form there. Finally, I'm announcing today that I'm launching a Patreon for Stageworthy. For a subscription of just $5, I will take you behind the scenes on the podcast, do regular Q&A sessions, and even present regular exclusive episodes that you'll be able to participate in. You can join in at patreon.com slash stageworthypod. Remember, you can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at stageworthypod, and you can find the website with the archive of all of the episodes at stageworthypodcast.com. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. Now on to my guest. In this episode, I will be talking to Lauren Allen. Lauren is a theater and film artist originally from Saskatoon, now living in Toronto. She is a self-described big dork who loves puzzles and Nintendo and is the foster mother of cats. She's also a brilliant social media marketer and consultant. She joined me to talk about, among other things, about the future Prairie Theatre Project. Here's our conversation. How, how are you feeling? Because I know that you were, you had the Omicron over the holidays. Yeah, I did. I'm feeling fine. Um, the only thing that I wonder about is if I have fatigue that's from COVID or if mm. I'm just tired because life is hard and I (laughs) (laughs) and I took this month off to like work on my creative projects Hmm. um so I I'm struggling to figure out like is this a a side effect or is this just because my life is structured in such a way now that I sleep whenever I want I don't know it's funny how quickly uh you can go from like have like as soon as you get to that point where you're like I no longer have to do anything and your buddy goes thank God and like yeah. all of the tension that was keeping you going just sort of like washes away and then suddenly you have to spend a little bit of time napping most of the time. Yeah, and I um I have heard a lot of people talk about like how their anxiety used to be the thing that allowed them to function in certain mm-hmm. situations. So if you start to treat your anxiety and your depression and those kinds of things, it can become harder to do the things you used to do because you're like no longer motivated by something negative. Um, so yeah. So I'm wondering if that's happening too. It's possible. I mean, that reminds me so much of how, when I was younger and dumber, um, I would spend each morning, I would read two newspapers online um, or at least, you know, skim through and I would read uh, the Toronto star followed by the Toronto Sun online. And I would say that I read the Toronto Sun to fuel my rage. And then I got old enough to realize that like, that's just not doing me any favors. Mm -hmm. So get rid of the trash and stop starting every day feeling angry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's like, that's like people on Twitter now Mm. who are just like, I'm here for anger. (laughs) It's like, why? Well, don't spend your energy being angry. You only have so much energy in a day. There's only so much time in a day. You're right. I also, you know, I was I was waxing nostalgic just the uh, just like yesterday about how I remember when Twitter was a wonderful place. I remember when Twitter was a friendly place where 
Uh, it was the shared ideas and everybody was friendly and nobody was angry. And it was a wonderful, wonderful place. And then everything changed. Hmm. I still find, well, I'm also, uh, as you know, I think I've worked in social media for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I find that like your social media environment is kind of up to you. Yes. Um. So I've curated a, a Twitter space where, yes, sometimes it makes me angry, but it gives me a place to let my anger out as opposed to fueling my anger. Mm-hmm. And it also is full of a lot of ridiculous, foolish things that make me laugh. So, <laughs> I mean, that is, that is still one of the, one of the great things about it. And I, and you're right, especially with Twitter, you can curate your list in a way that, that you, that, that say on something like a TikTok, you, you, you sort of like TikTok will direct where you go. Whereas on Twitter, like you're just going to see what you follow. And yes. if what you follow makes you angry, that's kind of on you. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, lots of people just follow the news and then they're like, ha, I'm in a rage because the reality of life. No um, wonder. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I remember yeah. like I remember wonder. I, do you remember the Angelina Jolie's leg thing from the Oscars years ago? Um, I was not as tuned in at the time i do know that that happened but i don't think i was like on twitter at the it was, time i don't know it was like this beautiful moment and I, I just remember it that that um you know angelina jolie she came out to present she had that like that that really high cut dress and her leg she's put her leg out like her leg mm-hmm. was like right out there and it was like the thing that was in the forefront not five minutes after she left the stage there was a Twitter a Twitter account called Angelina Jolie's leg, and it just said, "Here I am," and it was just like, like that's that's that was still when Twitter was in its um, uh, uh, still fun and playful place, and still things like that sometimes happen. So, yeah, I don't know if you've followed the Jean and Jorts saga on so Twitter. so uh, uh, peripherally, but it did make me so happy the Jean and Jorts thing. Yeah, so uh, if anyone who's listening doesn't know. Gene and Jorts. Look up Jorts the Cat on Twitter um, or just Google Jorts the Cat and it'll probably give you an article summarizing the story. But it's it's just a great account about an orange cat who's maybe not very intelligent, but really, really loves people. <laughs> My favorite was was like when they were like, oh, yeah, you should get some Jorts merch. And they were like, you know what Jorts merch is? You go to your local shelter and you adopt an orange cat and that's your Jorts merch. Yeah. Absolutely. And now and now they say like, oh, actually, any cat from a ah, shelter is George's merch. There you go. <laughs> it doesn't have to just, be orange. Just open it wide up. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's great. How long how long have you been doing social media stuff and, and what made you start on the, the social media path? Oh, I started in 2013. So what year is it? Almost 10 years now. <laughs> um But I started because I was the production assistant with a theater company in Saskatoon that had just it was their first year of operation. And they were like, hey, you're young. Can you make us a Facebook page? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I started working on it and I got really into it. And I was like, oh, this is cool to actually learn how this is supposed to function and Mm. how we are supposed to reach people that we don't actually have contact with. uh, because it was my first time not using Facebook for like my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's how I got started. And then I just kept working with different theater companies. And then when I moved to France, I did a lot of work with entrepreneurs over there 
and small businesses uh, with the same kind of thing. Like, how do we reach people? Making social media not a stressful part of somebody's life because mm-hmm. it can be. Like, I've I met so many entrepreneurs who are like, I know how to run my business and I don't know how to get clients online because that's not part of my business. Mm. Um, so it was great to to be able to help people feel more relaxed and to give them kind of a structure of like, here's how you can work social media into your everyday life in a way that isn't stressful and not overwhelming. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when I moved back to Canada, I kind of became more of a consultant and that's what I've been focusing on lately is just uh, doing kind of workshops and consulting jobs. Mm. Do you prefer that over the actual like doing? Yeah. Running a a social media profile takes a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's all about, you know, having the voice and the messaging and you have to kind of keep a lot of things in your head. Whereas Mm -hmm. when you're consulting, you can, um, leave that behind at the end of the day but if you're running the page it's hard to let go of that stuff Um, so i much prefer consulting absolutely absolutely because there's there's i mean social media can move fast and sometimes there can feel like the pressure to like respond to a thing super fast so you never really get to feel like you stopped for the day yeah exactly and you have to you know um be connected to it so that if somebody sends you a message you're right there to respond or uh, if somebody comments on your posts, you're right there. Mm-hmm. So I only run accounts for my oldest clients now. I'm not accepting new clients to run pages, but I do still do consulting work and uh, teach workshops wherever I can. Great. Now, you are, as you say, as you were talking about, you're originally from Saskatoon and you're now in Toronto. Yes. And, uh, um, but you did go back to Saskatoon uh, uh, just earlier this year, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I was working on the Shortcuts 10-Minute Play Festival um, in November, and then I went back to visit my family for the holidays because I was in Vancouver mm-hmm. in December, so I was like, well, I might as well just stop in Saskatoon on my way back to Toronto. Mm-hmm. And that's where the COVID hit? Yeah, well, I got it in Vancouver, and mm-hmm. then um, my symptoms started showing up in Saskatoon, mm-hmm. and it was very surprising because the only thing that I had gone to was I had a gathering um, to see my Vancouver friends um, that was six fully vaccinated people Mm -hmm. and I got sick and another friend of mine got sick but three people who were there did not get sick and then the one person already had COVID and didn't Mm. know it at the time Mm. so so I was surprised that I got sick um, and then I took rapid tests as soon as i arrived in saskatoon Mm -hmm. and the first rapid test was negative i took another one 30 hours later and was also negative and then 30 30 to 40 hours after that i took another rapid test and that one was positive but i'd been symptomatic for days Mm. at that point so it was very surprising and then my whole family got sick and that was the other thing that surprised me right yeah I, I, at this point, at this point, I know so many people who are getting sick with it, like just, and these are people who are careful, but yeah, it's just out there. Yeah. It's very, very contagious. And I'm really glad that, you know, my brother and I are 
both have our two shots. Mm. My dad had his booster. I was really worried about my dad because he's uh, 70. Mm. So I was like, oh, God, I really don't want to get him sick. And then I did. Uh. And um, and my mom got her booster the day before she started showing symptoms for COVID. Um, mm. And we got we were able to get PCR tests in Saskatchewan at that time. I don't think we would be able to now. Um, hmm. but that's how we were able to confirm that it was Omicron. And, uh, we, so we all had to isolate over Christmas. There was a day where I was completely isolated in a bedroom, oh. um, in the house, but then slowly it was like, oh, actually everyone has it. So I guess it doesn't matter. Well, once you realize that everybody has it, then you could all isolate together and you didn't have to like stay by yourself playing Nintendo or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we did kind of have a normal Christmas because the four of us were all in the house together, but we couldn't go and see anybody else. Right, right. Um, I mentioned Nintendo, and I just I'm just quickly going to bring it up because I remember I was listening to uh, your your wonderful interview on uh, uh, Shane Adamchuk's uh, Good Morning Mrs. Strawberry, and you were talking about uh, how you have a love of the Nintendo game Pimpkin. Pikmin, yeah. Pikmin, Pikmin. Yes, um, I actually. So <laughs> over the holidays, uh, my my mom likes to just ask what if questions um, mm -hmm. to, you know, for fun. So I think she said, what if you won $10,000 or something? Um, like not like what if you had unlimited money, but just like what if you had some money that made you feel comfortable? And I was like, oh, I would buy some of those video games that I love that I can't justify buying again because I technically <laughs> already own it. So like I have Pikmin 3 on the Wii U, but Pikmin 3 Deluxe was released on the Switch and I can't justify buying it, but it does have a bunch of new stuff on it that I would like to have. So then my brother for Christmas bought me Pikmin 3 for my Oh, Nintendo that's amazing! Switch. Yeah, so now I'm like, oh, I have... Pikmin 3 Deluxe and I get to play the new adventures. I'm so excited. <laughs> That's fun. I, and I, I remember I almost referred to your that 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 uh, that that interview as as the second best because he was going on about how the first you for some reason he didn't get the first one recorded. But you yeah. had a really great interview that nobody will ever hear. But you guys got to have between the two of you. Yeah, it was honestly really special. And I still think about that. I'm like, God, why? I wish it had recorded. Um, but, it, you know, we got to have a very special conversation between the two of us. And then inevitably, it feels like we we did it right back to back. Like he contacted me being like, mm -hmm. hey, the file didn't record. I don't know what happened do you want to just do it again now? And I was mm. like, sure. So it was literally an hour after <laughs> we had done the original mm. interview and it was just kind of weird. It felt, it, it was sad. I just yes, felt yeah, sad. And I was yeah. now, if I, if I listened back to that interview, I'd probably be like, Oh, I'm sad that it's not the interview we did initially. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's sort of the problem is, is like once you've, once you've had that lightning in a bottle, you can't recreate that at all. Yeah. Yeah. Which is such a common feeling in theater too. Mm -hmm. when you have yeah. that, that one day where you're like, Oh, I really nailed it. Really nailed it that time. Really got that, whatever I was trying to capture. And then you go back and do it the next day and you're like, uh, that's not the thing that I did. Uh. No. And I think we've all been there. And I think the thing that trips us up every time is the fact that, 
that we're thinking about the fact that we got it that last time. Yes. Yeah. And somehow that interferes with us. You know, we're thinking about the last time instead of instead of like being in this moment. And so we mess it up. And then the next the performance after that, I'm like, I didn't get it last time. And so you have like a couple of, of different performances where you're still thinking about that one time that you got it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tell me about uh, the Future Prairie Theater Project. Oh, yeah. So this is um, a research project that's happening for theater artists who are either deeply connected to or based in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. Hmm. And we are basically doing 10 Zoom interview sessions with uh, a huge cohort of artists discussing uh, discussing different questions about like our previous session was like what does community mean Mm -hmm. um and just asking people their thoughts and then all of that information is gathered by a team of researchers and eventually this research on theater artists perspectives is going to become like a list of actionable Mm. things to do to improve the theater sector as we move into reopening or the new forms that theater has to take in the aftermath of the pandemic so i'm really excited about the the potential outcomes uh who knows what it will be in the end but Mm. i'm excited that we're hearing from so many different people and just asking questions how did you get involved with that um i was working with the saskatchewan association of theater professionals because i was trying to facilitate some kind of community conversation about the struggles we've been going through. Um, Particularly in Saskatchewan, there's been a lot of um, artistic leadership change, uh, challenge about institutions and how they operate and the harmful ways that some institutions can operate because the systems are rooted in things like white supremacy and Mm -hmm. uh, capitalism and they don't you know, value the artist who is working there. Um, So I was talking to them and through a different community conversation, I met Taiwo Afolabi, who is the lead researcher in this uh, project. And then he and I ended up connecting and working together on this. And it kind of formed and then eventually it finally started. And I've had to leave the project a couple of times to do contract work. Um, Mm. So I'm working in communications and he's the like head researcher and he's working with the research team. And there are lots of great people involved in the project. Um, And it's done through, well, facilitated by the university of Regina. Hmm. And I mean, how many of those conversations have, have, have you had over zoom so far? We've had five out of the 10 that we're planning. So our next session is January 17th, which is Monday. Um, All of the sessions take place on a Monday because in theory, that's when all of the theater artists will be available. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so we've done five. We have five to go. And then there will be a whole other phase of, um, of the research part of it that the artists will not have to be involved in and then after the research part of it is done there will be some kind of publication that goes back to the artists and says this is what we recommend or this is what you have identified as solutions to these problems 
And uh, is it a week? Are they weekly conversations or monthly conversations? Or no, they're about biweekly um, because of the holiday. The mm. schedule has been a little bit mixed up, so we're gonna do back to back in January to get two done in January, and then mm. it'll be uh, biweekly uh, again starting in February. Nice, nice, and. And has, have you been sitting in on those conversations? Are you are you uh, are you listening in or particip- participating? Yeah, I do participate as an artist. Um, I was only available for the first three sessions uh, because for the last two sessions I was in Vancouver working on set, so I wasn't able mm. to join the meetings because um, the film industry works Monday to Friday. Right. Um, so. I didn't hear the last two sessions, but I was there for the first three and it's been really fascinating so far and it's been great to watch it grow too. Without, I mean, I know that this is an ongoing process and there's a lot of research being done. Is there something that surprised you so far in the conversations that you've been, you've been a part of? I'm thinking nothing really sticks out i find everyone's perspective interesting and there's lots of um ways of framing a problem that i maybe never i maybe wouldn't have phrased it that way Mm. or um i didn't think about it from an institutional perspective uh there are some people who are you know who work with universities who work in academia who work with theater companies and that's not my experience my experience is working with indie groups um, and kind of ad hoc things. So uh, so it's been interesting to just hear like, oh, so this is a problem for everybody. And yet we still mm-hmm. do that. <laughs> do you feel like, I mean, I think I find, and, and, and I know I, you know, my experience is in the, is in the, the greater Toronto area. Um, but the generally um, in, in the arts, we don't have enough opportunities to come together and actually talk to each other. Um and, you know, just sort of shoot the shit about the business. Um, mm. We sort of get to do it if we're in a show with people. Mm-hmm. And then we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that something that that, that that you've seen around as well? I think my experience in the Prairie community is not that there's not opportunity to talk to people because because everyone is kind of able to go to every event. Um, because the communities are substantially smaller, like, uh, so usually if you're at an opening night, you'll see a ton of industry people there and you'll be able to talk to them. And they'll, like most organizations are represented at those events. There's not really someone who's like glaringly missing. Mm. Um, so we do have opportunities to talk, but I find we never have an opportunity to speak frankly and to speak Mm. openly. Um, and there, there's a lot of walls put up because mm. in a smaller community, everyone has influence in some area or other. Um, lots of people have hiring influence directly or indirectly. So mm. it's very difficult to be honest with people when you know that they could be the ones giving you your next job. Mm. Um, and that's a struggle on both sides. You know, leadership wants to feel like they're part of the community and to be able to talk to people about their experiences and what they like or don't like about theater and all those kinds of things. But people are so nervous to talk to them because 
it's a you know what if i say something you don't agree with are you gonna not hire me and then mm-hmm. there's only one theater company that pays enough for people to live really yeah. so like it's very high stakes every conversation is very involves a lot of risk assessment i'll say that's kind of a, a, a I, I think that's definitely a problem everywhere even in a in a in a larger pool of 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 of, of theater people um this 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 honesty problem that we have where we can never be completely honest and i think that it's not just when we get together um it's also when we're like talking about a show like if if the audience turnout isn't what we wanted or the reviews are bad we can never admit it yeah we have to put on that that uh, uh you have to put on a face you have to put on like the brave face or whatever and so we're we're never completely honest because a we don't want we don't want to come across as as uh complainers Mm -hmm. even when there's something to complain about yeah you always want to be grateful you you have to be grateful because you know not everybody gets to do what you do and Mm. if you have a job you have to be lucky so you have you have to be grateful about it um but i find uh it's not even so much about what shows did I like or not like, but there's some really high stakes conversations that aren't being had that involve people's safety. Mm-hmm. Like um, there are so many known sexual predators in theater communities across Canada and people don't feel like they can name names. Um, no, because the be people really who different. those people often have power and have connections. Yeah. Or or you might not know, like, oh, do you like this person? Or if you know, oh, you've hired this person before. Um, and it's not common practice at this point to not take a job based on who else is in the cast, mm. right? Like, even if you're like, oh, I don't like them, you're still going to do the job because they're so difficult to get. Yeah, But it's really, like that's been really weighing on me a lot is um, not being able to talk about like, Hey, this person is dangerous and not just like a sexual predator. Like someone might be, um, you know, extremely racist in mm-hmm. their behavior. Um, and that might be difficult for someone to work with them. But if you're getting a job, you don't feel like you can be like, actually this person is not safe. And I would yeah. rather work on a project where they're not involved. Like it's, we don't, have agency in that you just have to be grateful for any opportunity and it can be really difficult uh to to bring up those conversations especially in a small community where it's like if i shoot if i shoot myself in the foot with this theater company then that is it there's the one theater company maybe two theater companies that can actually pay me enough to live on yeah that's uh, that stuff is really damaging. Like if you can't talk about if somebody can't talk about somebody who is a sexual predator or who is abusive or just toxic in the rehearsal hall, then um, even if you've been involved in that, if that was directed at you and you can't talk about it, you just push it down until you can't mm-hmm. anymore. And instead of bringing it up, people just leave the industry. Yeah. Yeah, because that's easier. Yeah. That's not going to I mean that you're giving up your career then you're not like shooting yourself in the foot because we've seen that when people speak up, they face consequences. Oh, totally. I have faced many consequences in my life for saying things, (laughs) Um, saying things that are not of consequence like that, but also being honest about 
the way people are treating me. There's mm. a ton of consequences. Um, and even the perception of consequence makes it difficult to speak up. So yeah. if someone is not active in saying, I'm receptive to this and I want to know these things. And if you come forward, this is our policy and this is how it works. Like if that stuff isn't in place, it's very difficult to say anything other than thank you for this opportunity. I'm like so grateful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that in a lot of ways um, and it goes back to theater school. Right. I think a lot of times in theater schools, we are primed for putting up with this kind of stuff. Right. Um, Absolutely. In theater school, a lot of times. I know I've I've heard that they don't do this so much anymore, but like when I was in theater school, they would cut somebody from the program, right? You're just not fitting in, whatever. We don't see a future for you. They would just cut you. They don't have to justify it. They can just say you're gone. And so you learn early on to, to be afraid of rocking the boat. And that primes you for being in a rehearsal hall and keeping your mouth shut when something happens. Mm -hmm. I I don't know of any theater program that is not inherently abusive. Um, and it's not just like, oh, that was a bad instructor or that's a bad program. It's like, no, they're structured to be this way. Mm. Like there's, you could have the greatest people teaching, but if this is the structure, yeah. it's going to harm somebody. I think in a lot of ways, it's sort of like that attitude of like when people, people teach the way they were taught a lot of yes. times and not to excuse it, but like, you were taught in, abuse, in an abusive fashion, and that is what you bring forward as a teacher, mm -hmm. right? So you sort of look at it like, well, I went through this, so you're going to go through it too. And, and if I have to hear another program talk about, like, and this was a big thing when I was in school, and I've heard it a bunch of times, uh, the whole idea of, you know, we have to tear you down and then build you back up. Mm -hmm. And tearing you down is painful and they never bother to build you back up. It's like Absolutely. they tear you down until you're a mess and then they send you out into the world still a mess, but they've taken everything you have. Yeah. And that's one reason why mm -hmm. a lot of people leave or don't continue trying to work after yeah. theater school. It's not because they don't like theater anymore. It's because it's like one, it's a very difficult lifestyle. Yeah. Um, but two, like it was traumatizing. Like I yeah. remember one of my classmates being forced to repeat the phrase I'm ugly to our class mm. until she cried mm. and she just had to keep saying it over and over again because quote unquote, that's how the character feels. Mm. But there was that it was not a useful exercise. It was totally personal. It was very uncomfortable for the entire class to witness because mm -hmm. it was like, we, you can feel that it's wrong. Yeah. You're sitting there being like, <laughs> this is, she's not ugly though and like you want to reassure her and then there's no you know after that exercise to the point that that student is breaking down the teacher doesn't go you know I don't believe this and I think you're a beautiful person and I think you're so talented they're just like great you got it move on right and that's I think that's completely like that is just a completely damaging thing like if you're going to put somebody through that mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're in theater school or if you're in the rehearsal hall, like we need to take the toxicity out of both of those things. And when somebody is having that moment, we have to carry through and take the moment to 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 help them through that because those things are traumatizing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I was in theater school, I one of my instructors um, got somebody to touch me in a way mm. that I was not comfortable with. Mm. And I had my first 
panic attack. Mm. And he apologized because I had a panic attack, but he didn't understand that it was wrong to give my classmates instructions on how to touch me without right. talking to me about it. Right, right, right. Like, yeah. Like he never learned that lesson. He just was like, oh, you got upset. And the other thing was I was having a panic attack, but I still finished the scene, <laughs> even right. though I'm sobbing and can barely breathe because I don't know what's happening. Right. right. I'm, oh. And I was 18 at the time. Mm. So I'm just like freaking out. And I finished the scene. And then the and then this uh, instructor is like, yes, that's what I want. That was so good. <laughs> I just uh, said, like, no. I'm uncomfortable. And I left the class. Right. And I know the people came and talked to me, but I don't remember what happened. And then he apologized to me later, but I could tell like, you're apologizing about me being upset, but you don't have any concept of how inappropriate it is to give actors secret instructions of things to physically do to their classmates to get a reaction. I think that's why that's, I think that, that that's been done in, in both theater schools and in rehearsal halls. And that's why, um, a like the whole profession of 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 intimacy directors has become so necessary mm-hmm. because a lot of that bullshit has been going on for so long, creating toxic atmospheres, and we need these the, we need these these people to come in and 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 treat it like a in a professional manner rather than some kind of a uh, 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 wild anything goes. Oh, isn't it funny how we we tricked her into getting that that reaction kind of thing. Yeah, and I I don't understand the mentality of like theater being like a gotcha moment, yeah. like ha ho, we tricked you. Like yeah. what? That's not that's not what we should be working towards. We're working towards building something together. Yeah. All that um, does is divide people and make people distrustful of each other. Yeah, it was awful. It was a really horrible experience. I'm sorry I made no. anybody listening to this podcast go through that experience uh through my story, but like yeah, it was awful. There was, um, you know, I, when I was, uh, uh, in, you know, starting, uh, starting out and I got into, I was accepted into two, two theater schools in Toronto and I chose one over another. And, uh, after I, I entered the theater school, uh, there were some people in the year ahead of me who'd gone to the other school that I got into and didn't accept. And mm. they told me about an exercise that had been going on for ages at that school. And it was uh, the bathing suit exercise where the acting teacher and uh, any of his friends or people in other years uh, who who he wanted to come would sit in the audience on the stage. And each performer would come in alone on the stage, boys in a Speedo, women in a bikini, and uh, they would be told what was wrong with their body. And that was supposed to be an exercise that you did with the first years for, I guess, to tear you down sort of thing. But like... That is such horrid behavior that, yeah. like, I was horrified that a, that, that a school, that a professor would do that. But then I hear later on, like, there are, there are private school, private acting classes that still do an exercise like that. Yeah. When I first heard of that exercise, I was told that people were asked to strip naked, not just to be in a bathing suit, but to be mm. actually n- naked to have people evaluate their bodies and and I just like who does that serve because I you know I've been having a lot of 
thoughts about my body lately. Usually the new year is very uh, triggering for that for many of us. Um, But like, I know my body better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And yet people still feel the need to point things out to me Mm -hmm. about how my body is. And it's just so unhelpful. It is so useless because I know what my body is and is not and how I feel about it Mm -hmm. and how it functions. And if another person, like I've started saying things like, oh, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a musical theater actor, but I wouldn't be cast in Toronto because I'm too big. Mm. Um, I feel comfortable saying that about myself. Maybe it's a defense mechanism to be like, mm. that's why I'm not hired. Cause I'm fat. Um, but if someone else was to was to be like, well, you'll never get cast because you're too big. You know, that would be very upsetting. Mm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't need another person to say that to me. I know. I mean, it's not like it's not like those like these things are mysteries to us, right? Like if we if we if we if we have the weight, it's not like we don't know it. Believe me, we know it. Um, yeah, you were talking about like who does that exercise serve? And mm-hmm. the and you know what? I think we both know who it serves. It serves the teacher. Yeah. Right. In a really gross way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, even if it's even if it's not sexual and just yeah. about power, that's still disgusting. Absolutely. Um, it's. I think it can be both. It's either sexual yeah. or it's about power. Like, I can make you do this. And then I tear you down by telling you all the things that you already know about your body that you're self-conscious about. Yeah. Yeah. What a what a useless way to teach someone about being honest, right? Like, to me, doing theater is about being truthful and finding the most truthful way to be in a fictional place and time. Mm. And it's so hard to do that if people are like, yeah, but your body is terrible. Or <laughs> or if they're like unclear about what world we're in. Like mm-hmm. if if I don't know what century the play takes place or if that's not a choice that's been made, it's hard for me to be truthful about anything that happens, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's you you have to find the ways to be truthful and that involves a lot of vulnerability. Yeah. Which is why it's so easy for these institutions to be so damaging. Absolutely. And the and I think the thing that, that sort of gets me is the fact that like when this was said to me, it was said in the safety of like nobody else around. Like even though these people had left the school, this was not something that was that was talked about widely, even though it was something that happened every year. And everybody who did it knew it was toxic and nobody said anything. Yeah, I I, I think that still no one says anything and like you know we haven't named that institution i immediately knew which exercise you were talking about Mm -hmm. and i'm not saying we should because you know this is a recording and people have lawyers but um you know there's still that fear of just Mm -hmm. being like this bad thing happened yeah i mean i i don't i just want to say i don't i don't like I was keeping it vague because I'm sure there are other schools that do it. I'm, I'm told they don't do it anymore. So I'm happy to name the school that was the right. It was Ryerson Theater School that did that back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are other schools that have also done it. But like <laughs> if it's a thing that you did, you have to own up to it. And it was toxic and it was shitty. Yeah. Yeah. And wouldn't it be nice if people knew how to apologize for mm. those behaviors? Yes. Yes. But they don't. No. And I mean, it's sort of like that. You know, I'm sorry you were uncomfortable. No, that's wrong. I'm sorry we did that exercise. It was wrong. That's the way you do it. You have to own up to the fact that it's wrong. 
Yeah, and you have to not do it again. Yes. Yes. If you own up to it and say that it's wrong and you do it the next year, fuck you. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Um, I want to, I want to, one of the things that, 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 that you are quite open about, and I just want to jump over to that a little bit. You've alluded to panic attacks and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. you're very open about, about, uh, your mental illnesses. And yes. I think it's, and I know you do it because, uh, of, of the stigma and trying to fight against the stigma. And I think, um, we have to talk about those sorts of things too, right. Instead of hiding them, because, those stigmas exist because they've been hidden. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of your mental illnesses, what what was the path to for you to being so open about about them, or was it a no brainer for you? Um, <laughs> part of it was a no brainer in that I am an oversharer, <laughs> <laughs> which um, is actually rooted in. Uh, in trauma. So it's a little bit ironic that, you know, I became an oversharer because I felt like I couldn't have secrets, like, mm. like everything that I tried to keep secret was getting revealed. So mm. I decided to just reveal everything about myself um, so that I couldn't risk that hurt. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was officially diagnosed with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, I did make a conscious decision to be like, I'm going to talk about this. Because this has been really hard. Mm -hmm. um, I have never gone through something as difficult as the there. I mean, I so what I have is actually called complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which basically just means I have multiple traumatic events in my past that mm -hmm. caused me to have a stress disorder. And stress disorders are very difficult to live with because things that seem not stressful become very stressful mm. um and things that seem stressful can be like the easiest thing in the world like i'm a person who will run towards a burning building because i'm like i can handle this um you know my levels of adrenaline uh feel good and i feel like myself when i'm completely stressed out and mm that's when I'm most calm. So it's a very kind of, I'm making a gesture, but you can't see it. Um, <laughs> it's like a very divided way of being. Um, but I just wanted to talk about it because mm. it's incredibly common for mm -hmm. people to have post-traumatic stress or to just have a traumatic event in their lives. Mm. Um, like almost and especially with artists, I find we are overrepresented in uh, anxiety and depression disorders. Mm -hmm. um, possibly because we all went to traumatic theater institutions. <laughs> <laughs> and we also don't talk about it. It's another one of those things that we don't talk about. Yeah. And I've found, you know, I've had to go through, I've been in therapy for many years. And I know I have many more years of therapy to come. Um. Like on average, someone who's diagnosed with PTSD will be in therapy for 10 years. And mm. there can be other setbacks uh, to that that makes it longer. Um, so I was thinking uh, yesterday or two days ago, I was like, oh, the last traumatic event that kind of tipped my illness over the edge happened to me in 2019. Mm. So in theory, I'm going to be actively working on recovering 
until 2029. Mm. And I just can't fathom that amount of time and and having to accept that I will have struggles and setbacks mm. for such a long portion of my life is like really, really hard to come to terms with. And it's also just like time doesn't exist right now in the pandemic. So I'm like, mm. I can't imagine life in three months. How am I supposed to think about eight years from now or 10 years yeah. from now? Um, as far as, as, as being open about, about your mental illnesses go, um, is there, when you go into a rehearsal hall, mm -hmm. is there something in particular that, that you ask for or want in the rehearsal hall? Um, that, that, cause I'm always, I, I have, I'm sort of formulating this theory that I've been thinking about for a while about, um, how to make the rehearsal hall less toxic. Yeah. And how to make it a safe place. And one of the things is to ask people what they need or what mm -hmm. they want from the rehearsal process um, and to make that integral to the rehearsal process. If you were to be in a rehearsal hall and, and to answer that question, um, what kind of things would you say? I find check-ins and check-outs really, really useful. Um I really struggle with knowing when to disclose mm. uh, about my diagnoses mm -hmm. um, because if I disclose before I get a job offer, mm -hmm. there's a risk that it will cost me the job. Sure. And there's a risk that the theater company will be perceived to have not hired me based on my disability um, because it is classified as a disability. I don't mm -hmm. I don't really identify with the word disabled at this moment, but I do know that post-traumatic stress disorder is a disability. Mm -hmm. um, so if they are perceived to not hire me because of my disability, then there's a whole other like list of contentions and issues that can come up and and that can be very damaging to a relationship between an artist and a mm -hmm. company. So I don't like to disclose it before I get, the gig unless it's specifically asked like if they're saying we're looking for people with mental illness mm -hmm. i'll say i have mental illness or if yeah. they're saying we're looking for artists who identify as mad i'll say i identify as a mad artist mm -hmm. those kinds of things um but if i can have a check-in and a check-out i can say things without having to say like because of my ptsd mm -hmm. this is blah 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 um, I can just say, like, I had a nightmare last night right. that has really knocked me out. Um, and then people know that's the context for my day is that I had a nightmare last night that has really knocked me out. That's kind of all you need to know about my illness is how it's affecting me that day in that mm. moment. So, so like I a check in that. at the a check in at the start of the day and then mm -hmm. and then sort of like a, a an end of day sort of. Uh, check out to see how everybody's doing at the end of the day. Yeah, because sometimes mm. at the end of the day, you can identify like, oh, I feel so good about the way we worked together. Mm -hmm. Or you can say like, I'm feeling a bit confused. Mm -hmm. I have these questions. Or when we did this exercise, I actually felt really unsafe because mm. blah, blah, blah. Like, and it's hard to create that space where, pe where people feel brave enough to come forward. Um, I'm actually reading... Uh, a book called Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. Uh, oh. Love Brene. But it talks about how it's so important for leaders 
to understand vulnerability Mm -hmm. and to be ready to dive into it and to be able to say like, Hmm, this was really hard today. And I know that this is stressful. Yeah. Um, and I'm here for you and I support you. Uh, if you are stressed or if this was a struggle for you today, like I understand that and I want to hear about it. Please let's talk about how difficult this was because the leadership has to be the first to come forward with that before the other people will feel comfortable sharing their vulnerability. I think people forget how it, how, how important the behavior that's modeled by the leaders affects everything else. How, the way that the leader presents themselves to the group and the way that they react to things sets a tone mm-hmm. that 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 either encourages people to share or shuts it down. Yeah. And the leader and, and you know what sometimes like if 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 somebody is is like very clearly the lead in the play they can also do that. So you can have like a situation where the lead in the show plus the director can both facilitate that sort of thing, right? Um, can both like set that tone and they mm-hmm. both have to do it. Cause if one or, doesn't, one doesn't, you kind of in a, in a, a strange uh, messed up situation. Yeah. Or any kind of authority, right? Like I, it, the show that I was rehearsing just before the pandemic. So we never actually opened. Mm. We were a week from opening when everything mm. shut down. Um, I was the most experienced actor mm. in the group. Um, aside from the director, I suppose, um, but he was a very abusive man mm. and it was awful. It was an awful work experience, but I really took on a leadership role because I was like, I know that this is inappropriate behavior mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm the only person in the room who can kind of speak to that and say like, no, in a professional environment, you do not behave this way. Right. Um, and you know, he had us doing fight choreography with no fight choreographer. Right. And with with people who had only acted once or twice before in their lives. And I just was like, this is unsafe. This is how a fight choreography should go. You should run it at 25% and then at mm. 50 and then at 75. And it doesn't need to get faster than that. Yeah. yeah but he no. would just he would just be like, drill the fight, drill the fight. He would give no instruction other than drill the fight. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I, so I took on that role because mm. I had the authority in the room to be like, no, I'm the person with experience and I can tell you that this is how we do it and this is not okay. And it's, and I would affirm to lots of people in the cast, like, it's not okay for him to talk to you like that. Yeah. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's, I think that's one of those things that, like, again, like somebody has the whole like toxic situations, like somebody needs to be able to like say something. Right. That's what we were saying earlier is like, the the there is the need to be able to call that out and in a situation where you have that kind of position you feel free to do that the problem mm-hmm. exists in 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 situations where people don't feel that yeah and i with this particular example you know i tried to talk to other people at the company and say like hey this guy's behavior is really inappropriate how mm. how can we have some kind of recourse or consequence about this how do we protect these people and there was no there was nothing in place to do Mm. that the person that i reached out to was like oh well he's technically my boss so i wouldn't feel comfortable hearing any complaints about him Mm. and i just was like okay well who else do i talk to and they were like i don't know talk to the board so i tried to talk to the board and you know nobody responded to me but it was just like you know this guy is 
horrible. It's a horrible experience. The way yeah. he talks to us is horrible. Who do I tell? And there was just no support for that. And I and I, I even tried to go to um, CAEA, even mm. though it wasn't a CAEA house because he was a member. Right. And I was like, I know this isn't a union show, but like who... How how am I supposed to protect people from this behavior if there's mm. just no reporting system, if it's just going to be me raging against this person for the rest of my life? Like, how how can we use the structures that we've confined ourselves to to actually serve people mm-hmm. instead of just being like, oh, well, he's technically my boss. So I guess, no, you can't complain about him to me. Too few theater companies have anything that's even close to a human resources department where somebody can go with those kinds of problems. Um, I think too often it ends up being the stage manager or something like that, which who doesn't really have anything they can do. Um, yeah, they can they can listen with empathy, but mm-hmm. really, what what else is there to do? And also, yeah. it's it's hard in a in a theater environment because some people just don't work well together. Mm-hmm. I understand. As an institution, it can be hard to be like, oh, is this just an interpersonal conflict that nobody is able to mediate? But um, like I know of an artist who has around eight complaints against him at the equity offices. Mm -hmm. But nothing will be done with those complaints because they're just filed. Right. And what if wouldn't it be great if someone could just see not necessarily the content of those complaints, but if they were hiring that person to just know, oh, this person has eight complaints against them. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, I think there's, the, again, it comes down to like information shared, right? Mm-hmm. There's nobody, there's nowhere to go with that information. And so we don't, I mean, this is, this is why, I mean, this is why the shit at Soul Pepper happened the way it did. There was nowhere yeah. to go. So we, again, the industry often sets people up for these kinds of things that we don't have a resource, a recourse because we're too busy being nice and not wanting to rock the boat. Yes. The institutions serve the institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so we need, we need to rebuild them. We need to rebuild our whole way of thinking about theater. Um, and the pandemic has provided some opportunity to do that. Um Especially when when people were able to access support from the government. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. It, in Saskatchewan currently, there are no um, restrictions. So no one is able to get the uh, government support that is maybe accessible here in Toronto to right. people who have lost 50% of their wages. That's not mm-hmm. available to people in Saskatchewan at this moment. Um, yeah. Which is so frustrating. So, And that makes it harder for us to be uh involved in activism for ourselves and for our industry as long as we are forced to struggle to keep our head above water we can't do anything else and that is exactly the point yes it is exactly the point i think that part of the i you know the the industries the industry needs to change um and it's sort of a little bit dismaying to see how there was a brief period of time, summer of 2020, when we talked about some changes. Um, but then we go back to essentially business as usual for a lot of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been no structural changes and no examinations really about, about uh, the, the, the issues that, that they may have. And so 
the 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 toxic and and abusive structures still remain in place. Yeah, I mean, I was a a part of um, one of those conversations about change in Saskatchewan when the artistic director of Persephone Theatre left. Mm. Um, it was a very difficult time for the community because we had to struggle with, you know, we have a personal relationship to this person, but also knowing that as an institutional leader, the behavior was unacceptable. Mm -hmm. um, and now the theater company has new leadership, new things are happening. It's exciting, but there's also like a, well, there's a 13 year legacy from the last guy. Mm you're going to have to fight that for a while. Yeah. Like the change yeah. cannot happen overnight. And, no. and we need to see demonstrations of your commitment to the new and to moving forward. And we can't see that because theaters still aren't really open. No, no, that's so. That's, yeah, absolutely. So I feel like it's, it's hard to evaluate where we are in this moment because not that nothing is happening, but because the pandemic is overshadowing everything and it's giving mm -hmm. it's giving people other excuses or framings or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we don't have experience with that. So we don't know how to analyze it yet. I'm sure in five years we'll be like, oh, the pandemic was this time in theater. Yeah. But right now we're just kind of like, oh, what? <laughs> It's because you can you can't exam you can't examine the you can't really examine the thing while you're in the middle of it, especially no. when you're just trying to keep your head above water. Yeah, exactly. Um, just in closing, I wanted to ask you um, about being a foster mother of cats. Oh my gosh, the greatest joy! <laughs> the greatest joy. Um, I actually got two new cats today. Their names are Polly and Herbie. Um, my favorite part of fostering is um, learning about that particular cat's personality. Mm. Um, and already in the first few hours, you can learn some things like these two cats are incredibly curious. Lots of other cats that I fostered have been um, feral cats that are being like adapted to home life so they're mm -hmm. not as curious they're much more cautious but these guys are like what's going on what's over <laughs> here what does that smell can i touch this um and they also both immediately discovered the mirrors in the hallway which i fostered 13 cats last year and none of them noticed the mirrors ever <laughs> but these cats are both like hey i can see you but you're behind me that's confusing <laughs> so i'm That's excited fun. after this interview i'm gonna let them explore the main room for the first time and it's it's gonna be fun to watch them be like hey what's this or uh, some cats are like i don't care about my environment at all and i just would like for you to pet me until the end of time mm. and some cats are like i will be under the bed <laughs> well you have a sense what you think these guys are gonna be oh yeah i think they're gonna want cuddles Oh, I nice. think they're going to want cuddles and proximity, but not necessarily uh, like I've had, I've had some cats who are like, I will lay on your chest and rub my head against your face for half an hour. Um, <laughs> I don't think they will be quite that affectionate, but they nice. will be like, let's hang out together. You're my friend. <laughs> That's nice. That's great. Lauren Allen, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thanks as always, Phil. Thanks.